All right, good morning, Rooted. Take just a couple of minutes for everybody to get on here. So thanks so much for watching today. I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers watching. Say happy Mother's Day to my mother who lives uh, in Moyock, North Carolina. I'm sure you don't know where that is, but it's the northeast corner of the Outer Banks. And uh, sometimes she listens to my Sunday school lesson. So if you're listening today, Mom, I love you. Thank you so much uh, for all you did to make my life what it is. And I'm sorry it turned out to be such a disappointment. (laughs) And uh, I want to say happy Mother's Day to the mother of my children, and uh, especially to Anna and Porter. Thank you so much. And uh, to the mothers that are in my family, to Taylor, uh, who gave me a granddaughter, turned out to be great mothers, and uh, looking forward to many more, hopefully. And uh, so happy Mother's Day to all of you today. And while we're waiting here for everybody to join, go ahead and take your Bible and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is our 11th week in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're already in chapter 5, which means we only have 11 more chapters to go. And uh, so uh, we're working our way through this book. But the purpose of Sunday school is not to get through the book. It is to learn the book. And if we don't learn the book, then we've wasted our time. And so this is not like the worship service. We try to go deeper on purpose. The reason why this class is called Rooted is because we want you to get in the Word of God. And if we can grasp one book out of the Bible and fully apply it to our lives, we will be way ahead of of where most Christians are. Because most Christians just have a surface knowledge of the Word of God and they don't really have anything of any quality and depth beyond just that surface relationship. So the purpose of this is to take our time and go through it. And uh, as you know, we finished the book of Hebrews, spent about a year or so in the book of Hebrews. First Corinthians will not take that long, uh, I don't think, because it's not quite the depth that Hebrews is, but uh, definitely some things going on here. I don't know about you, but as we've studied the book of First Corinthians, I, it's been difficult because First Corinthians has so much correction in it, so much uh, a discipline that it's 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 hard to study and hard to read. In fact, I had someone who listens to the Rooted podcast, and you can get this this audio from this class on a podcast. Just look up Rooted with Dusty, and you can find it on Apple and Google and Spotify, Anchor and some others like that. But she listens to that, and she told me in a message she sent me, she said, but Dusty, I'm listening to your Rooted podcast, but I'm not always enjoying them because they are convicting me. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian and as you grow in the Lord, uh, you get to the point where you hate conviction and correction, but you love Conviction and correction. The book of Hebrews reminds us that no discipline or no correction is pleasant in the immediate, but afterwards it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And because it does that, uh, we learn as Christians to love correction, to love discipline, to love it when God brings us back into a line so that he can bless us and give us more knowledge and teach us more things. And so if you're watching today, remember, I can't see you. And so I can see a screen at a distance. I can't necessarily read your comments. Um, But I can read some of them, but I can see your likes and I can see your smiley faces and I can see the hearts and the hugs and the stuff that you put up. So if anything that uh, goes on there in that area, if you like anything I say, then uh, let me know it. That encourages me while I teach. It's like you saying amen in the class or we're sitting together in our classroom and like you smiling and nodding at me. Uh, Not the nodding about going to sleep, but the nodding of uh, being with me. And that encourages someone when they teach and preach. If you never had the privilege to stand behind somewhere and do that, then uh, you, you just don't understand. But the people responding to you encourages you. And so you can encourage me this morning, and uh, if you do that, it will help me. So flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to talk about just a couple of things right before we get to that, though. 
Uh, I said chapter 5. I apologize. I got one thing in chapter 3 I want to discuss with you. Because last time we were together, we were talking about the fact that there's some verses of Scripture I want to point out. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 reminds us about our foundation. And I'm going to read these verses to you, then we'll jump to chapter 5. Paul says, According to the grace of God which has given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This passage of Scripture is talking to us about the fact that there is... One foundation to build upon. And upon that foundation, there are two superstructures that you can build. You can build one out of wood, hay, and stubble. You can build one out of gold, silver, and precious stones. These are the two foundations that you can build. And it speaks of the day. If you noticed it with me in verse 13. For the day shall declare it. What day? It's the day of God's assessment. God's judgment of us and how we have lived and performed. And I know that I probably won't get a lot of likes in this part of the teaching because it's convicting to us. But the day reminds us that there is coming a time we'll have to give an account upon how we have built upon the foundation. Now he reminds us there is no foundation but Jesus Christ. If you don't have Christ, all that you're building is worthless because it's on the wrong foundation. And we're speaking of worth in terms of eternity. I'm not saying that a man can't do good things on earth apart from Jesus Christ. There are people who do. It's obvious. But those things don't count in eternity. It only counts in eternity when I have built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. We have to have that. But just because I have the right foundation does not mean that my superstructure is built correctly. Because he tells us there's two ways to build. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stone. And this would have... Uh, This analogy would have uh, been very appropriate for the Corinthians because you can read some of the uh, history of Corinth. They had suffered a terrible fire, had burned a lot of Corinth. And so Paul is drawing this comparison. He's saying, you know, the day's coming where it's going to be revealed the quality of the life that we have built on the superstructure of Christ. And if you build it out of wood, hay, and stubble, all that's going to be burned up. But if you build it out of gold and silver and precious stones and metal things, they don't burn. They last and stand the fire. And let me go ahead and tell you that this, uh, this passage of Scripture has been used sometimes as the proof text for the idea of purgatory. But see, in the way that purgatory is taught is that a man experiences the fire of purgatory and that he gains purification through the fire and is elevated into heaven. But this verse is not talking about gaining. It's talking about loss. And it's not talking about a man's soul. It's talking about a man's works. And so Jesus is telling us through Paul that our lives that we're living today are being built upon a superstructure. I mean, built upon a foundation. And the superstructure that we can build is only one of two things. It's valuable and eternal or it's worthless and temporal. I just ask you, are you building a fireproof life? 
Are you building a life that will stand the test of the judgment fire of God? Let me read you this quote. All that I do, of which Christ is not the source, God utterly discards it as worthless. That's, that's a convicting thing. And as we look at our lives and we consider all of these things, we have to agree that most of us had a whole lot of wood, hay, and stubble and very little gold, silver, and precious stones. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 17 uh, that past 15, 16, 17, he gives us all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, is not of the Father, is of the world. Verse 17 says this, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abideth forever. That's what he's talking about, that the good that we do for God abides forever. If you do God's will, that lasts forever. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us this long litany of those who were what we call the heroes of faith. Really, they're just the people that Christ built. But their faith is honored. And one of the very first ones is Abel. And this little phrase is said about Abel. Because in reality, we don't know much about Abel, but that he was the second child of Adam and Eve. He offered a, a lamb, and his gift was accepted, and his brother's was not. And Cain despised Abel, and Cain killed him. Outside of that, we don't know a lot about Abel. But the Bible says that Abel, being dead, yet speaketh. He's still speaking. In other words, his faith, all the way at the beginning of humanity, still stands today as a testimony to encourage us or to condemn us. Because with the limited light he had, he built something that lasts forever. Psalm 139, you should pray this prayer sometime. Verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That word search me means to dig deeply. God, dig deeply in my life and find those things that are not pleasing to you. And then it says to lead me in the way everlasting. Well, what is the way everlasting? It's the way that lasts forever. It's having things in my life that will live beyond just my existence. You know, sometimes in dealing with things in our lives and stuff, I've heard people use this expression, oh, 100 years from now, it won't matter. Nobody knows the difference. But the truth is, 100 years from now, you will know the difference. You will know. It does matter. It does matter. And the life that I live now makes a difference in the life that I live in eternity. See, we talk about, oh, we're going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven when they die. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. Man, what a day that'll be. I love all of that. It'll be great. We're all gathered around the throne worshiping and praising. I love to read the end of the book of Revelation where it talks about the lamb and his bride and the river and the fruit trees and the throne of God and all of those beautiful, beautiful things that make heaven what it is. Absolutely. But we don't talk an awful lot about the fact that how we live now determines our standing in the world to come. It does. And people say, oh, Brother Dusty, I'll just be thankful that I get there. Just build me a cabin in the corner of glory. No, no, you, you won't be satisfied. You'll be like the kid at graduation who squandered his time and wasted it. And yeah, he's graduating, but he gets no honors. He gets no rewards. He gets no scholarships. He just got by, as the book of Job says, by the skin of his teeth. That's how you feel. That's how you feel. But on a much, much grander scale. And 2 Peter chapter 1 reminds us that if we do certain things, that a glorious entrance 
shall be administered unto us when we get to heaven. Well, if you can have a glorious entrance, that also means you can have an inglorious, inglorious entrance as well. I don't want to be the guy that gets to heaven and God goes, who is that? Dusty, let me look in the books. Yeah, his, his name's there. Surprise, surprise. He made it. He made it. And I know we'll be thankful we made it. But understand, my position of authority and what God gives me to do in His new kingdom is determined by how I live in this day and in this moment. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. 1 John 2.28 tells us to abide in Him that we won't be ashamed at His coming. Well, uh, if you want to do certain things to avoid being ashamed at His coming, you know what that means? It means you can be ashamed at His coming. If the positive is true, the negative is true as well. If you can do certain things to avoid being ashamed, that means if you don't do these things, you will be ashamed. And while we're looking for Jesus Christ to come, I don't want to be ashamed. I've got enough to be ashamed of. I want to build the right foundation, on the right foundation, and I want to build the right kind of superstructure on that foundation. And it's God's will for me that everything I do lasts for all eternity. And it's God's will for you that everything you do lasts for all eternity. Now, you don't have to teach Sunday school. You don't have to be a preacher. God would call you to do those things. But whatever He calls you to do, do it in the power of Christ and be busy investing not in this temporal world, but in the eternal world. You know, I'm going through some transitions in my, my life and uh, in my house and all, trying to going to sell my house and uh, find in a, a, a little more permanent place. And, uh, but, but thinking about these things sometimes helps me reflect on how temporal this life is. Things that we see are temporal. And if I could get Anna the best house, the best house that has ever been built, the thing that answers all of her, checks all the boxes, fulfills all her dreams, gives everything to her that she needs to just have the perfect place. At the end of the day, it's just for a little while. It's just a temporal thing. What will the home be that we're preparing in eternity? What kind of world awaits us on the other side? That's how we should be living. And while God blesses us on this side and we enjoy the blessings that He gives us, the Bible says if riches increase, don't set your heart upon them because they're temporal. Invest in eternity. Invest so that when you stand before the Lord Jesus, you don't have to be ashamed. And how many of us are going to be ashamed? Oh, I hope this convicts your heart like it convicted mine. Don't build wood, hay, and stubble. Build gold, silver, and precious stone. And if you don't know how to do that, ask Jesus to show you. Look to Jesus and He'll lead your life into eternal things, not just temporal things. All right? And uh, so let's move on from there. That's a difficult thing, but we, don't, we need to think about it. We need to be reminded of these things on an everyday basis. Now... When we first started the book of Corinthians, I gave you this list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight enemies of the church. All right, eight enemies. And we have spent a lot of time on the enemy of division. And the reason why we spent a lot of time is because Paul spent a lot of time. There's 16 chapters and he spent the first four of them dealing with division and the causes of division. All right, in chapter five, we're going to move into this enemy of impurity. And I would just remind you that Corinth was a city known for its impurity. Remember at the beginning in our introductory classes, we talked about the fact that Corinth was on an isthmus with 
ports on both sides from the east and the west. And so all of the transient population that comes into ports and the behavior that goes with the transient population because they don't live there. And so therefore there's no, there's no temper, there's no uh, control of their behavior sometimes because after all, they're leaving in a week or so. And so they would bring all that wickedness from the east and all that wickedness from the west and it met right there in Corinth. And then Corinth had the worship in the temple that involves immorality, all of this wickedness going on. And so Paul is dealing with this impurity in the church. And chapter 5, verse 1, he gives us this uh, difficult sin that's going on there. Try to be very discreet. I don't know who's watching me this morning or who's going to be listening to this podcast, but I want to be plain, but I, I want to be careful as well. I don't ever want to be inappropriate. But Paul deals with this. It is reported commonly, I mean, it's a known thing, that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Paul said, there's a problem in your church. It's a commonly known problem. It's not a secret thing. But this kind of fornication that's going on in your church... It's something even the unsaved, the Gentiles, the heathen don't practice. But it's going on in your church. It's going on in your church. Hey, Terry Thomas, I see you. Thank you for joining me. It's going on in in your church. And he says, if it's going on in your church, why is it going on in your church? And what is the sin that a man should have his father's wife? Now, the wording there seems to indicate for us that it was not his mother biologically. All right? Maybe his mother had died. I don't know the circumstances. But it seems to be a stepmother. But either way, either way, it is a disgusting sin. And Paul said, you have left him in the church. Verse 2, for you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed may be taken away from among you. For I verily as absent in body but present in the spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that have so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me make this plain to you. What Paul advocating, what is he advocating right here? It's called church discipline. This is not a person outside the church. This is a person in the church at Corinth having a relationship with his stepmother. And everybody knew about it. Commonly reported among you. Now, church discipline is a sticky and difficult thing to talk about. But let me just remind you, it's in the Bible. It's in Scripture. Paul says if this is going on, then you need to put him out of the church. Now, we need wisdom in the application of church discipline. I think sometimes some of the constitutions that I've read at churches talk about the fact that he's a member in good standing. I'm not sure what that means, member in good standing. It doesn't mean what it ought to mean. We're probably not strict enough. But why had they not put this man out of the church? I mean, why would he have have a relationship, a sexual relationship with his stepmother and he not get put out of the church? Maybe he was rich. Does money affect... How we deal with things? Oh, you know it does. You know it does. What if he was a a man of influence in the community? What if he had power in the church? What if he was a deacon? What if his daddy built the church? 
and his name was on the pew or the stained glass window? What if dealing with him created such a stir among the power families of the church that it would create such a a, a row and a division that it just wasn't worth it to deal with it? Let me go ahead and say this. I don't have anybody in my mind, and thankfully this is not true at Liberty Church, but it is true in a lot of churches. If your family is part of one of those power families that tries to control things, box the preacher in, tells him what to do, God help you on the judgment day because he is going to deal with those things that have hindered the growth of God because of families who like the power and the control and like to be able to manipulate and have been part of things and are not so much about spreading the gospel as they are about protecting what they enjoy. God help you. Some of those churches need to close and need to start all over. And for all of those preachers across America who are struggling because they can't do what they believe God wants them to do because three deacons who give the most money in the church will not allow them to be able to do the things they want. God help you. Keep your stinking money. Go start your own church. Leave those people to themselves. Some of the churches that are dying across America need to die. Some of these families can let go of the power that's involved in these things. And maybe this man was one of those groups and the church was scared to deal with him. Paul said, if I was there, I'd throw his tail out. He said, because that's not going on in the church. And uh, he said, I've already judged it. He said, turn him over to Satan that the spirit may be saved, but the flesh would be destroyed. Now, that's church discipline. That's what Paul's talking about. Known sin in the church dealt with. Now, if we practice church discipline in your church, in Liberty Church, where we go, how many people we have to get rid of? It's a difficult thing. First of all, where do you start? And where do you end? What sin qualifies for church discipline? And what doesn't? And the problem we have in a lot of our churches is that we have a lot of people who go to our church, but they're not members. They're not members. And so it's really hard. You can't deal with somebody in a disciplined way when they're not really part of your group. They just come to the church. But if a member is part of a church and he's living in sin... How do you deal with that? Well, the Bible gives us some admonition about the pastor going to someone and then, you know, taking somebody with him if they won't correct the problem and then bring it before the church. But I'm going to give you a little bit of insight here when my life grew up and something I I really disagree with. But I I watched this lots of times as a young boy. They would have to church discipline a member. And what that meant was not necessarily just getting up and saying, hey, so-and-so is living in sin. They don't want to get right. Remove them from the role. I've seen that happen. I don't have a problem with that. But I also saw where they would drag a <laughs> they drag a young couple up, usually a teenage boy, teenage girl. She's pregnant. And they make them publicly apologize to the church. And that was church discipline. That was how they made things right. And invariably, invariably, it didn't lead them to get right. It drove such a wedge because of the embarrassment in their life that they left the church and went somewhere else to church. That's what happened all the time. And it always seemed sadly humorous to me that I knew of people in the church who were sleeping together. They just didn't mess up and get pregnant. But the girl who, guy and girl who didn't practice safety got drugged to the front because they made the mistake. 
Then they're not going to have a shower for the baby because the baby is illegitimate. Like it's the baby's fault. And you need wisdom in these things. But I don't think dragging somebody up in front of the church because they made a sexual mistake in their life and they shouldn't have been sleeping together. That's the sin, not the pregnancy. The sleeping together is the sin. And all that's going on out here, it just seems so inconsistent to me. But I feel like that we should practice how the Gospels tell us to go to that individual first. And they get right and they humble themselves. Then just touch on it in a service. Let the church know, hey, this has been taken care of. We're rolling on. But you get a church of four, five, six hundred people. That's awful. We'll be dragging somebody up every week about the things going on in our life. And so I, I know it's in Scripture. But it's difficult as a pastor to know how to address it in the church. But Paul said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to deal with it. But please don't miss this. I'm going to give you these slides. All right? There are... There are Two remedies or, or purposes for church discipline. All right? And if these purposes aren't kept in line and in view, then the whole way we're going about things is wrong. If you'll notice it in verse number 5, he talks about that he wants to save the Spirit. Right? What does he mean by save the Spirit? He means that he wants repentance to be brought into the life of the individual. That's the purpose of discipline. The purpose of discipline is not for me to be vindicated, for me to show them. The purpose of church discipline is the same purpose when I discipline Porter. It's not because I like whooping him. I don't like whooping him. I hate whooping him. But I know that what's in his life will destroy him if I don't correct it. And so I have to correct it in a small measure in love and tenderness with tears streaming down my face. And if they're not streaming down my face or at least in my heart, then I'm approaching it in the wrong spirit because my desire for him is always for him to humble himself and repent and be welcomed back into the fold. That is the purpose. Let me ask you something. Did this man repent? You can read 2 Corinthians. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And Paul said when he did repent, welcome him back. Welcome him back. He's so frustrated. So frustrated. People sin. They are people. But when people get right and come back, they should be welcomed back by all the other sinners that are in the church with open arms. And the Bible tells us if someone is overtaken in a fault, and the wording there is this idea of somebody walking along and a lion jumping out and grabbing them, they're overtaken in it, that the spiritual ones should try to restore this individual lest they also be tempted. So he's telling them. And yet we get this attitude where somebody messes up in their life and for the next 50 years we remember it and we talk about it and the whole relationship is affected when all of us and ourselves are just wretched sinners too. And if your personal life was broadcast publicly, nobody would talk to you either. So the Bible just reminds us that we're worthless individuals and when someone falls into sin, if they come back and they repent and they have humility in their life and it's been dealt with and the discipline brings them back in, then restore them. Restore them. Now, I understand there's got to be time to prove themselves. You know, if they stole from the offering plate, I'm probably not going to hire them to count the offering for a long, long time. All right? Not going to. But give them the opportunity to restore themselves. And let me go ahead and say it, all right? If a man is divorced, that is a sin. But once that sin takes place, if a period of time goes by, he gets his life right with God, he comes back around, all right? Shouldn't be held against him 15 years later 
that this is still going on. And if you want to talk about the husband of one wife, I'll be glad to discuss it with you. Just read my blog. i got got a post coming out about it. DustyBracket.com. You can look that up sometime. It's not out yet, but it's coming. And, and the way the Word of God is structured in that passage and what that means. The grace of God is not that you hold a man's sin against him for the rest of his life. If that were the case, none of you would be in church. None of you would be able to do anything because all of us in this room are just a bunch of sinners. Right? Just a bunch of sinners. And if we have the right spirit before God, then we ought to have welcoming arms. Not to those who are practicing sin and living in sin. That's the way you want to live. Stay out there. Stay out there. Come in when you're ready to get right. Come in when you're ready to get right. And don't try to get right and then come to church. Come in when you're ready. I'm not, you know, I'm not running a hospital that tells people when you stop bleeding, come see me. When, you come, when you're bleeding, come see me so we can fix it. But that's the desire to fix it. And once it's fixed, I never, never talk about it again. I don't remind my children of all the bad things they've done, all the times I had to discipline them. Once I disciplined them and it was made right, it was done with. It was over. Relationship restored. That's what Paul seeks for. And that's what all discipline is supposed to be. And so I believe we should practice church discipline. We should practice it with the desire to see people restored. Not alienated. Not driven away. Not ridiculed and pointed out. If their spirit won't get right, then there's nothing we can do. But take them off the church roll. Give them time. I want to show them the love of Jesus as well. The second reason why it's necessary to have church discipline is for the purification of the church. Verse 6, 7, and 8, Paul talks about, uses this idea of leaven, and that's yeast uh, in the Bible, and how that little bit of yeast affects the entire bread loaf. And he's reminding us, and you can read this for yourself, that that little bit of leaven can affect the entire church. And he says we have to remove these things to keep a purity in the church. And I will grant you this, that in our world in which we live today, our churches need some purification. Uh, I, I am not convinced that the majority of our church attenders are born again. That's just my personal opinion. I, I just don't think it. So, But I hope I'm wrong because I want everybody to get saved. But uh, listen to this quote. The best evidence of a revival spirit in a church is the disposition to exclude members who will not walk in the way of the Lord. Revival spirit. Yep. If our churches are going to be larger, they must first become smaller. Mm. Think about these things. But the purpose is always to bring them back. Now, let me just touch on this a little bit. All right. What does it mean when it says, turn this one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved? It's the idea of the destruction of the sinful flesh that the Spirit may be saved. In other words, give them over to the consequences of their decision to grasp their attention. Put to you like this. I worked in a rescue mission for a long time, and um, oftentimes there were parents who would call to have their son brought to the rescue mission. And invariably, there would be a mother who would drop her boy off. That's a terrible thing to even consider that she'd have to do that. But... We would find out later that one of the reasons why he was in the shape he was in is because she had enabled him. And she had prevented the circumstances and the consequences of his choices from reaching his life. She had kept him from going to jail, kept him out of trouble. And because she continually enabled him, he just perpetuated his own decisions because there were no consequences. But sometimes if you can take your hands off of somebody and let their consequences lead them to the bottom 
and the destruction that comes naturally with sin happen in their life, then they're ready to listen. Then they're ready to pay attention. Then the Spirit can be saved. And Paul says, if this guy is going to go on in his fornication and disobedience, turn him over to Satan, cut him out of the church so that the consequences of his sinful sinful lifestyle will be destroyed and will destroy him. But his spirit will be saved because he'll be ready to listen. It also means that the man was a believer in Jesus Christ and the flesh can be saved and destroyed and yet that man still be saved. And the idea there is that we want to bring him to the place where he'll listen. And if you have a child this morning that's dealing with those things, please don't enable them. Don't, don't, don't keep the consequences from coming in their life because sometimes the best place they can get is at the very bottom. Remember when you were on the bottom? The only place you could look is up. You're like the prodigal son when he sat in that hog pen and the Bible says he came to himself. And he said, what am I doing here? I can do better than this. Even my father's servants eat better than that. As long as he was enjoying his life, as long as it didn't cost him anything, he was content to stay in the far country. But as soon as he got to the bottom, he began to think about how wonderful the father's house was. And I just remind you that sometimes people will never change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. That's when they'll change. And sometimes you've got to let that pain get in there and drive them to the bottom so the only place they have to look is to Jesus. So I know this is a difficult passage of Scripture, but the Bible teaches church discipline. But it always teaches it with the goal of bringing that person back and restoring them and changing their life and getting them in the right relationship with Jesus. And when they do come back, Oh, may they find the open arms of people who understand what it's like to be lost and found, to be blind, but now we can see. May they find that kind of love. Too often they do not find that love. They find judgment. They find criticism. They find gossip. And they find slander. And the world is full of people who used to be in church, used to be doing things for God, but because of God's people, they don't anymore. Let that never be said about us. May we show them the love of Christ. Now listen. If you enjoy this lesson at all, share it, all right? Like it and share it. That helps get the gospel out. This is the freest, most free, easiest medium medium to spread the gospel. Click, share. It's easy. Share. You can invite people to the group. It's an open group. I have a friend of mine that lives in Ohio, and I met him through the rescue mission. God has changed his life. Daniel, if you listen to this, I love you. And uh, God has blessed him with a family. It's just tremendous what God has done in his life. Got a flooring business up there. Sent some carpet down to my house, man. He's just been a blessing in my life. And uh, he said he went through his uh, Facebook friends and just share rooted, share rooted. And I've watched the membership go up to like almost 500 people in the group now. Just spread the gospel. If this benefits your life, share it. And then remember, you can get the audio on podcasts. You just look up Rooted with Dusty. And uh, you can find the podcast, which is the audio from this class. And you can listen to it at your convenience. And then from time to time, I write some stuff. You can look at that at DustyBracket.com. Thank you so much for being part of my class. I love you guys. Don't know when this is going to end. I hope that we will be back in church soon. I can preach to you and teach to you looking at you. But until that day, may the grace of God keep you, protect you, may His face shine upon you, and be gracious unto you. Thank you so much for listening to Rooted today. Take care, and happy Mother's Day.